I am so very grateful this week, just overwhelmed with good news. The first part of this year, there was just so much death in my family and so much bad news, cousins, aunt, uncle, mother-in-law, and then we had to put the dog down. And so when good news comes, I want to share that too. Um, I got a phone call from Vanderbilt University, my alma mater, saying they were inducting me in the 2022 class of the Vanderbilt University Student Media Hall of Fame, which I just feel blown away. I mean, guys, I barely graduated. <laughs> I, don't, I'm not, I don't want them to look up my transcript. It took me, I crammed, you know, four years into six, and the one great thing was that I met the great love of my life, the mother of our four children, and that was the best thing that ever happened to me at Vanderbilt. This is now the second best thing. And I have our friend Katz Barry, just a superb photojournalist and a member of the Hall of Fame herself and a dear friend who shot our wedding, by the way, uh, to thank for this. So I wanted to say that. Also, um, Voice Locket, my business, my cash business, I have completely rebranded, repositioned, Go to voicelocket.com and look at it. I want to know what you think. I already have my first three paying clients. And the way I'm doing it now is to produce films. So I can't take as many clients. And um, just take a look at it, voicelocket.com. And to have thousands of dollars in cash actually hit the account, I can't tell you how grateful and how exhilarating it was. For this week's episode, um, my old Morantz recorder died, so the ever-patient Brian Baltashevitz is recording this on Zoom. Brian, thank you for making time. And um, uh, I did a Zoom call. I usually don't like to do them, but this woman is the exception. She was introduced to me by another podcast guest. This is how this should absolutely work. And oh, boy, is this one. I'll tell you more about her in a minute. Jesse Wilden. So once we had them home, they didn't have their shoes or their blankies or their iPads. And in my head, that just was the first thing. Like, we need to get those. But we couldn't. It was a crime scene. This is In Her Words, a podcast from manlisting.com, featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing because every woman deserves to be heard. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to In Her Words podcast. This week, wow. Um, Hope Aldred was in episode 120, 20 episodes ago on April the 21st, and she was just compelling, a story of a very strong woman who bounced back from the death of her husband. She went to a writer's seminar and met this woman, Jessie Wilden, who was in Mount Shasta, California. So I did not jet out there, but through the miracle of Zoom, we did speak. and. It was very hard for me not to tear up. Um, I'll give you a trigger warning way in advance. Jesse Wilden adopted her niece and nephew after her brother-in-law murdered her sister-in-law, his wife, and then turned the gun on himself. Um, this story is heartbreaking, but also compelling, because Jesse Wilden has written a book about the whole taking in these children who, one of the children, age 11, discovered her parents. So these were the kids they were bringing in at the same time they were grieving. She's written a book, it's called We Wrote Your Name in Color. I pre-ordered it paid cash money and it's it's an amazing story because it's a story of resting hope out of the bleakest of circumstances 
I'll let you hear. Jesse Wilden. Where were you born? I love this story, actually. It's my favorite. <laughs> I have my dad tell me every year. I was born in Incline Village. That's in Nevada. It's right by Lake Tahoe. And um, I was born on June 4th. So it should have been a nice sunshiny week, which it was. But on the day I was born, I guess lightning and snow, <laughs> every element happened. And I, I have my dad tell me this story every year on my birthday. I just, I love it. I just, the nostalgic part of me. But I figured that the story had kind of grown over time. <laughs> and one day, one of the discharge nurses who, when I had had one of my birth children, she was talking about the day she graduated from nursing school in Incline Village. And wouldn't you know it, she's like, it was like this freak snowstorm and there was lightning and everything. I'm like, what day was that? She's like, June 4th, 1982. And so that's where I was born and when. And so it just, yeah. So now the story is just epic to me. <laughs> that was the word I was thinking was epic. That's it's. And what makes it more epic is it's true. It's true. It was not exaggerated at all. And it just, yeah. So that was a really great gift. What? If anything, did you learn from your mother about how to be a mom yourself? My mom had an extremely wonderful gift of pulling out the good in me. Um, she would just say it as such a statement. She would say, um, I loved planning my own birthday parties. And she would say, you are just, you are a planner. You're so good at that. But she would say it in a way that you just believed it. It became fact. And I realized that really resonates with me. And then another thing that she did is she let beauty into our home all the time through literature, through music. Um, I didn't realize until I was out of my home how much music was in because she's a pianist and a flautist and she plays saxophone and um, she teaches. And, and then I, so I noticed that all of us sisters have very creative bends and I, I really owe that to my mom. Um, and I also think she taught me how to make something happen by breaking it down into steps. Um, I was homeschooled for a lot of my childhood. And I think that mentality of, you know, you figure out how to do something really has led me here. Um, and I really attribute it to her even more because I know she had a tough childhood. So I would watch her and I go, this is all new for her. Um, and I can't tell you the respect I have for that. How did your creativity manifest itself when you were a girl, like going into middle school and high school? Mm. Well, truly, I felt I was the least creative of all of us <laughs> because it didn't man itself. I didn't like crafting. Jesse, <laughs> it's not a comparison. You can stop comparing yourself to yourself. Absolutely. Isn't that something to just you. get rid of? <laughs> but what that was my perception of myself, you know, it's like, uh, I wasn't, you know, um, I had, I, I kind of stopped music lessons and things. And so I, I kind of would have labeled myself in that time period of my life as not a very creative person. Um, but later I found out I love creating websites. I love words. I love storytelling. And so really that was my creative outlet. I loved storytelling. Even then I loved a good story in a circle where everybody laughs or cries and, um, so I think that is how it mostly has manifested itself. It just has taken different forms now. This is your first book? Yes. Congratulations. It's Thank a, you. It's a monumental effort. It is. Thank you. It takes, it takes a lot. It is no small thing. It's like finishing a marathon. It is. <laughs> I, I just have to thank everyone out there who's done this before. <laughs> So what prompted the book? Mm. Why did you well, have to write it? Mm, that is a great question because that's it. You don't go through all of that, that turmoil and effort without a real reason why. Well, we had had a really horrific um, last five years in October. It'll be five years. And, um, and what had happened was, is it just, it, it had remade me. And um, I was looking around in our community and 
there were a lot of people stuck in grief. And so I remember thinking like, I look in under our roof and we're thriving. Like we came to this place out of pain and we're thriving. And I look around and so many people are stuck. And I thought I was curious about that. I was curious, like if someone could look into our lives and see that, um, not as a roadmap, but just as like a a sharing, um, would that help? And so that had been kind of stirring inside of me, but the basic story of the book, really the, the hidden gem of it is that it was the nine months that I was pregnant. And the first couple, I didn't know I was pregnant because I thought, where do I start this story? Where do I tell the story? It's not a biography. It's not my life story. It is a, a point in our life and one where I learned probably the most I ever learned. And so I decided I was going to call it the year of Mila because that's my youngest daughter's name. Um, because when, um, we had decided, my husband and I had decided that we were going to finally build our dream house in Mount Shasta, California, but it was expensive and we needed, we lived in a suburb about 30 miles away. And so we sold our house and we couldn't carry both mortgages. So we sold our house and we moved into the back of his parents' garage. It was just temporal. My two daughters were going to live inside the house and we were just going to build this thing and move in and um, move on with our dream. So while living in the back of the garage, um, the house almost just fell through. It was such a miracle that we were even able to build it. Um, But right into building it, surprise, you're pregnant. I have a 16-year-old and a 10-year-old daughter and I'm in the back of a garage (laughs) building a house and I'm pregnant. And well, it what was, was your gut such reaction when you when you got that? You say it was a shock, but what was what was your gut? Oh, I think I think I didn't. Ha- I my gut was the worst timing in the world. Yeah, <laughs> like I love children, but I was like, this is just uh, the worst timing in the world. <laughs> like I just, you know. Um, and what did your husband sh- say? My husband. I, he looked, you know, pale and we both leaned back into this <laughs> red couch in the squish, this tattered red couch that we had in the, in that little teeny 300 square foot apartment. But the truth is he said he knew he had had this like premonition that, that like, that it had happened. It was almost a deja vu. And so I found a lot of comfort in that, that, you know, there was something that, that, you know, what I believe is God was taking care of. I'm like, okay, I don't understand it, but I can look for a reason. And we kept moving on. So I just was slammed with morning sickness and we didn't tell people for a little while. We just needed to adjust to it. But about two months after that, um, we got a call one morning from my niece and um, she had found her parents. um, And she said they were bloodied and they wouldn't wake up. And I just, I think about the word anguish and it just goes for your bones and that call. And we, I was just, um, I thought if there's an emergency, I'm going to take a shower. And I just remember I want to be ready. And I just was like, let it be a nosebleed, let it be a nosebleed. But it turned out to be a suicide homicide. And nobody saw it coming. So now we thought back to 10 years before when um, their names were Danny and Rena, and it was my husband's littlest sister and her husband and our best, best friends. And we thought back to 10 years before when they had had their second child, they asked us to care for their kids if anything happened. And we took it seriously, but what's the likelihood that both of them would be taken. And so as soon as, you know, all of that, we knew that was something we had been asked. And so we went from, you know, having two children to in six months, having five. Now, how old was this girl? Her name's Kieran and she was 11 at the time. So she discovered her parents. Yeah. So not only are you stepping up, I'm going to try not to cry. Not only are you stepping up, 
you are inheriting, taking in a child who is profoundly traumatized. And yeah, two children, yeah, but and, one that and, found them, yeah. And you're you're in grief. Mm -hmm. And like you guys are grieving together. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. there's no manual. There's no, no manual for parenthood, but there's super mm -hmm. no manual for these kinds of kids who, mm -hmm. let's face it, a lot of times end up in foster care and shuffled around from home mm -hmm. to home. So you gave her the great, great gift, Jesse, of, of a stable place. Mm -hmm. During these, these single, just most inexplicable and difficult time. Mm -hmm. So what was like square one? What was the like day of, well, first we got to do this. Mm. They got to come home quicker than I thought because we were a family. Um, and like I said, we were living with my husband's parents. So it was all of us there together, which really was a gift to have each other right there. Um, so once we had them home, they didn't have their shoes or their blankies or their iPads. And in my head, that just was the first thing, like we need to get those, but we couldn't, it was a crime scene. Um, and so I think the next thing became the police came and told us that all the family had been notified. And so the press was calling and we needed to do a press release. And you're like, <laughs> you know, it's been two hours and the whole world's going to know. And I think we, so we had to kind of like grapple with that quickly. I think the first thing before that was like, I need to tell my birth children. And there was just no, like, how do you tell um, a 16 year old and a 10 year old this, you know? Um, and so, yeah, we sat them down in the same place that we sat them down to tell them we were pregnant. Um, and we told them that, you know, that that had happened. Um, so it kind what of words, became like, they need to know because the world's going to know. What words? Do you remember the words? No, I don't remember the words. I remember trying to have words and looking over at Ryan, like pleading with him. And I remember telling them that we call it, we said, Uncle Danny and Auntie Beans are in heaven today. And I, I just, I, I didn't tell them how that day, but I told them in the next day, I think. Um, because I needed words, but I thought they, they felt everything. They saw it was an emergency, you know, um, and they needed to know. And then right after that is when Kieran and KK or right in that time was when Kieran and KK or their names um, came home. And so, yeah, so it all was just happening so quickly. You'd really couldn't sit with, I mean, sit, just sit with it. There were, um, but the, the police were kind to us. The, um, the press was kind to us. Um, we got to write our own press release or help with our own press release. So uh, my brother-in-law did that. And so there was a lot of kindness in the community, but they had shut down the schools because it was technically a shooting and um, phone calls started coming in. And so one thing that we knew we needed to do is um, I decided that on my social media, we would just make a a statement, you know, kind of because we were getting so many messages. Um, and a lot of people just didn't believe it was true. Um, and so I grabbed my phone and I wrote a simple message about like the unfathomable void and like kind of asking people to give us some spaces. We grieved as a family and I showed it to my, my sister-in-law. So Ryan has two younger sisters. So this was his youngest sister that died. And then his other sister was at the house now. And I showed it to her. And she looked at it and she said, that's really great. You know, go ahead and send it. And I just was looking at it, like ready to post on Facebook. And I had the funniest idea. I thought, I wonder if we could get into their accounts. And then out of my mouth pops the funniest thing. I was like, maybe we could just say, 
comment as them be like, okay, it's hot down here or, you know, five stars, the food's great up here. (laughs) And we just, in the midst of grief, we had been like two or three hours under the most grief. I mean, it took me to the ground when we found out, but there was such a gift of just, we all started laughing and laughed until we were done. And I thought there were these this goodness to scoop up through the day. And that was one of them that they let me have that moment that no one judged me for it. And then we got back into, okay, you know, like now we, we do the next thing. And one of the things in grief is just taking one minute at a time um, in trauma and tragedy is like, I don't know how to do this, but it was one minute at a time. And so we just kept taking it, you know, one day, one hour. You're a person of faith. Who were the angels that stepped in Mm. that really gave you something pragmatic to to grab hold of? Well, at first, nothing pragmatic works. Um, (laughs) It's too deep. The pain, there's no words that go deep enough. There's no advice or steps you can take. And you need to sit in it. And so the people who were the angels at that point sat with me, just sat. I had one friend who was in, um, she was near Russia at the time and she flew and took, I don't know how many trains to get to me. Um, and she just walked into my room and got into bed with me and she just wept with me and, um, those were the kindest things because we want to say something. We want to soften the blow. We want to encourage. We don't want to be uncomfortable in our own grief. But what I have found is that we feel that words fail because they do. And so, especially when, you know, your life has just been shattered, um, I would encourage anyone just to sit. Like it may feel like the most uncomfortable long hour of your life, but that person will share with you um, what they need to. Um, a lot of times I have found that we ask questions, like someone gets divorced and we're like, okay, what happened? Were you, you know, like what, you know, and you want to know kind of the formula because I think we are afraid and we don't want that to happen to us. And, um, so I think people in their fear and trying to understand, there were a lot of questions about like, what is, you know, and that's not helpful. And people really wanted to know the signs. And we didn't see any signs. And that was really hard for people to believe. Um, And so I think that would be what I'd say for like tier number one in grief or trauma. Um, And just to look for practical needs, not to ask, what do you need? Um, You know, just to do if you're in that inner circle. And if not, sometimes you just need to wait and give time, I've found. But I think after that initial shock and when life starts, you know, you needed to move, um, there were a couple things I really held on to. And one that became very crystal clear when I was writing this story, um, because my editor said, well, what were the signs? Your readers are going to wonder what the signs were. And I was like, there weren't signs. Like, I mean, because if you see them as signs, then anybody who had a bad day or any of these things we saw, I'm like, what are you going to do? Go like pound down their door in the middle of the night. I'm like, they weren't, you could maybe put them together now, but really if you saw them in someone else, you wouldn't still wouldn't see them as signs. So, um, I, I was wrestling with how to write this. And I thought one of the things with suicide in particular, when you, um, are a victim of suicide or someone you love does that there are so many huge gaping holes of what you could have done or what you should have said, or the, the should have, the could have, you know, and, um, my friend says you, you just end up shooting all over yourself, <laughs> I've heard that. But, the, <laughs> but the truth is there is so much like question. Um, and that becomes a lifetime sentence of regret. And so what I would say to that is the thing that I found was we are not the whole. We are not the whole. We do not keep people alive. We do not, you know, like I believe God is the whole, but you can't just step back and say, we don't have a job, you know, um, what is revealed to us or what's in front of us. And we have a really important job that matters. And I think when that gets out of balance, when we think we're either the whole or that what we do doesn't matter, I, I believe that 
we get in a really dangerous place, either full of anxiety because we can't manage it all or full of depression because what's the, what's the effort? What's the, you know, there's nothing here for us. And so I found that, but I think more practically in day to day, it was just looking for goodness. Like it was medicine. I remember at the end of the day that they had died. Um, I sat with my then 16 year old teenager, Katrina, and I could just see all these people bringing food and there was a vigil going on that we didn't go to. And there were just so many kindnesses. And I looked at her and I said, don't miss the goodness, scoop it up. And she goes, I'm not. And I just thought, if you can find goodness in a day like that, you know, that will buoy you because we live in the gray. We live between the black of death and the white of hope, like all the time. Um, fast forward to the day that we actually adopted them over a year ago and on adoption day, going to the most happy thing ever, there was a fire and we passed the fire of people like, like are evacuating their homes. And in order to get to the courthouse, we had to pass the fire. And I thought we just live in the gray. And so you get to choose, you get to choose where to plant your flag and where to look. And that becomes the anthem of your life and the threads of who you are. And that will save your life. (laughs) You get to choose where to place your focus. That's right. You get and that will change cho- everything. You yeah. get to choose the story. Yeah. And you well, get to choose whether you'll stay. You what? Here's what I mean by that. You yeah. get to choose how you will frame this. So you, yeah. Jesse, were a woman of faith before this, and you're a yeah. woman of faith after. However, it changed your faith. Yeah. Now yeah. I interrupted you. I apologize. No, no, thank you. No, that's exactly it. It grief remade me. Um, it, you know, I think we're afraid sometimes to let go of sorrow because we don't want to let go of the person or we don't want to forget or we don't want to become numb to it. And I think so instead, I really like to think of it just as, yeah, it remakes us. It just, it almost changes our DNA to go through something like that, but we get to be part of those ingredients. Like our, what we look for, get to be those ingredients, you know? Um, so some people, it remakes them to be angry and bitter and very stuck the rest of their life. Um, or you can learn so much beauty from it and see God is adding to your life or life is adding. Um, and so I just think it really is the remaking. It's going to remake you one way or the other. Um, it's um, yeah, how you how you add to it. You said it almost changes our DNA. I am no scientist, <laughs> but I've done some reading along these lines, and my understanding of the emerging science of epigenetics is that it does change the mm. expression of the DNA. It does not. Mm. And so how, trauma is interpreted how it is framed for Mm -hmm. these children of yours now Mm -hmm. um is everything um Mm -hmm. so there is no such thing as denying this homicide suicide there is no such thing as denying that and so Mm -hmm everything about the ability to heal is in how and what you and your husband have done for them. And so some years have passed now, and I just want you to sort of educate me into how Like what happened, you know, when the press all packs up and goes away Mm -hmm. and then Christmas is passed and birthdays and anniversaries and uh, and you have to get about get your shoes and don't forget this and 
let's get out the door and we're running late and come on, you got to clean your room. How do you, how did you do that? How did you deal to become an adopted mom with kids who had been damaged? They'd been broken. Hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a complex question. Um, I think, I think the first thing I remember doing because nighttime was hard because during the day you can kind of distract yourself, but at first, especially nighttime was where all your thoughts and all your remembrances and all the sorrow can really hit hardest. And so I really decided very early on with them in our home that their minds needed to be filled with good things. So we went into nature a lot. Um, and then before bed, we read, I'm like, if they can hold on to other images and other stories, um, that was really helpful. And then we did end up with really great therapy um, and really great school support. And so kind of like they became their, their tribe and their village was such that they communicated with us really well. And so as much as Ryan and I did, it was, it was that as well, the people who partnered with us, but, um, it was also them. They chose to make us their family. Like I would never have blamed them if ever at some point where there was an argument over shoes <laughs> or getting ready or just tension them saying, you're not my mom, but never once have they, they have always been so kind to me in the role that I took up and, um, and just so generous and so willing to love with open hearts because they didn't feel, they didn't believe that that means that they didn't love their former parents. Um, and so watching children grieve and allowing them to grieve naturally how they do really taught me a lot because I noticed that kids can be um, just crying and in bed and in your, my mind, I'm like, okay, the day's shot. Like this is going to be it. But about 20 minutes later, they'll be up laughing and towel snapping each other. And I learned a lot about like, we almost feel like if we're very sad, but then suddenly we're very happy that we're being disingenuous. And I found that that's not true. And so I really tried to actually model after them that it can come like a summer storm, just, you know, like whoosh, you know, and then it can be gone. And so I really allowed that rhythm in our home for myself too, you know, because I think as adults, we, we feel very like, we can feel very judged with how hard you're grieving, how long you're grieving, you know, like, are you grieving enough? And it's very interesting. So sometimes there's a pressure not to be too happy or to be over it. And I watch children when they're not pressured and they don't have that. They do not think that way. And I found, I was just so in our home and uh, I had, um, I kind of, I didn't know what to do. I had right away. I had no manual, as you said, that's just how I felt. I'm like, I don't even know where to get support for this. Like I don't, I went on Facebook trying to find a group. I would type in on Google everything I needed. And I just sounded like my life sounded so crazy in a, a Google search. <laughs> and what do you finally, type? <laughs> I, I don't know. I just would try to fill it with all kinds of things. You know, I thought I'm not really just an adoptive parent yet. I'm not really just like a a suicide survivor. I mean, there were just so many things happening. And, and then I was having, you know, I was just getting over morning sickness. And so meanwhile, I, I just didn't know where to go, but I called, um, I, from a friend who had had, who had adopted, she had an adoption specialist and I just called her. I just thought maybe, you know, who maybe she'll have something. And she called me back and we were actually in home Depot while I was just following my husband around and she called me and she just gave me the best speech ever. And um, it became my backbone at that what'd time. What did she say? Oh, she said so many things. But she said, she said, um, when they come home, like to, to your new home, make the rules really like 
tell them all the rules. Don't like work them into the rules, like make it really so that nobody's guessing and nobody's failing. And she goes, and you can always loosen up those rules, but make them tight and make them right away. And so everybody's on the same page and nobody's like tiptoeing around or oops, that was wrong. And so everybody knows. Um, she said, don't be afraid to pull one kid close that day. Like, don't be so worried about equality and you know, that, that one, you know, if you're, if you're, uh, you know, if, if, you know, a little boy needs to stay home that day from school, that's okay. Or if they need more that week. And so she was kind of like, just let go of that whole notion. Just watch each child watch and be there. Um, and she said, and they'll call you mom and dad, you know, one day. And she goes, and that's okay. And if they don't, that's okay. And she just would, it was such practical advice, but she said, it's okay to make boundaries for your family, which was something that, um, because we kind of like, because their parents died, Everybody, uh, when I told the family what they had said, everybody believed us and supported that, but I didn't feel like their mom. I didn't feel like I had the authority to go, no, they can't go to that or no. And yet they needed more protection than anybody else. And um, after talking to her, I was really able to give even family and friends and better boundaries and pull them really close. And so I was just so, so grateful for her deep advice that day. And I felt like I grew a backbone in being their mom. That was the first day I probably was like really their mom. And, um, I was just so grateful. And later, you know, about four years later, she helped us to adopt them. So <laughs> did they call you mom one day? I, three years went by and they still called me Jesse. And I thought that's fine. I had long let that go, whatever they wanted. But after adoption, they came to me separately and they said, I want to do this, you know, and it was so it wasn't just like it wasn't automatic. It was a gift over and over and over. And it was a, a letting go and a seeing life as adding thing for them. It, it risked a lot. And so, yeah, but they slowly they just said, I'm going to try this if that's OK with you. And then one day it just was always, and now it's always, so we are mom and dad, but it was such, it was such a gift. Like I watched them give it and it was not automatic and it was not easy, um, but it was full of love and generosity and looking forward. When it first happened, how did you react? Like what was your feeling in your body when that, when you heard mom? Um, oh. It was almost like I, I almost did a double take. And I thought, I don't want to make too big a deal out of this and make them feel nervous. But then I thought, but it is like to honor what they just did, you know? Um, so my daughter, Kieran, had started calling me mom and had talked to me a lot about it and her, her therapist and things to like, choose that. So I knew it was brave and I knew it was coming. Um, and so I, that was kind of more gradual and I could just be like, you're, thank you so much for that gift. But my son called me, he was in the laundry room and he just said, mom, like something. And I just kind of flipped around and he goes, is that okay that I call you mom now? And I'm like, I just like teared up and I'm like, oh, of course, if that's what, you know, and, uh, so yeah, it was a moment like with both of them, but an extremely like I almost you just like hold it in your hands and look at it moment. <laughs> Hi, I'm Dr. Kim, the parentologist. As a wife, mom, therapist, and all around juggler like most of you, I lead a hectic life. And sometimes that means indulging in foods on the go that my stomach doesn't always agree with. Thankfully, Pepto-Bismol provides me fast and effective relief for all kinds of upset stomachs. Having a little too many guilty pleasures at a family barbecue or birthday celebration may lead to indigestion or heartburn, so I always keep Pepto on hand to get fast relief when I need it the most. Pepto-Bismol, use as directed and keep out of reach of children. You, you could have been their legal guardian without adopting them. Why did you and your husband decide to adopt them? Well, and, and we really, I tell the story in detail in the book, but really we, the first thing was to get guardianship. And so, 
Um, we felt we had all the support of everybody. No one else had said they, you know, they wanted to, no one was fighting us for that or anything, but so we did need to go to court to kind of like, we got a lawyer to fill out the forms and, you know, like all of that thing. And I thought it would be quite simple, but I, when I went to court, I had this weight and I went with my best friend. My husband was working his butt off, just building the house and running a business, trying to keep us fed. And so he really just, because it was shuffling paperwork, he didn't go, but I could with 30 minutes to the courthouse, there was this wait. And when we got there, um, some family members had, were struggling with it, just, just fear of losing some connection with them. But the judge that day was just such a miracle. The judge just really saw me and we got into mediation that day and we got guardianship, but we could have, right, just had guardianship till they were 18. But my oldest had gone through like the college application process and to fill out the, what they call the FAFSA, you know, which is just, you know, yeah. And there was a whole section if you don't have parents. And I just saw it and I thought, I can't imagine filling this out. And people had told me, oh, they'll get great help and things. But I'm like, to write that you have no one, like, you know, in your mind you might, but I'm like to write that over and over. It just kind of took me. And so I thought, I don't want them to ever feel that way unless if they choose it um, because they were mine, whether they like, they just were, and they were my husband's and they were the siblings. And so I had told them very early on, like, if ever you want to be adopted, you just let us know and we will figure it out, you know? Um, and they said, okay, but they never really did. And I, I really wanted to adopt them. I wanted them to feel, um, but you know, I'm adopted. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Oh, that's well, wonderful. I, I feel compelled to speak as an adopted person and say, no matter what you call that person, mm-hmm. you can call them auntie or teacher or coach or whoever. Yeah. There are plenty of parents who do not advocate for their own children. And mm. this is what you're talking about is in matters great and small that you know that somebody's going to back you up, yeah. that somebody has your back. You could be a thousand percent in the wrong. You could kneel bail bond money, but that <laughs> yeah. person's going to be there. They're going to back you up. And so in a FAFSA form, it's like, Here's somebody who's going to just take a little off my plate. You know, there's just going to be one more sort of homework assignment I don't have to do. And so um, thank you. Thank you for seeing that and sharing that with me. I am. Yeah, that was a small piece. But even every time we go to the doctor, they'd be like, so, you know, the out loud in front of everyone. So you're not their mom, you know, I mean, it would just be, and, and I, we could have lived that way, but I wanted them to know that it, it could be however they wanted. And, um, we kind of had some struggles with some family members because there was just so much grief and we really thought if they trust us more, things will get easier. And kind of at this point we found out it may not get easier. And we asked them again at one point and they said, please adopt us. So we said, okay. And we started the process. So actually, um, once we did adoption, we were guardians and adoptive parents for um, a little while. (laughs) So there you go. (laughs) But I am, I'm so glad because some people did counsel us just as friends that if you don't adopt them, they'll get so much more money and help and assistance. And I thought, so basically everybody, I believe everybody has, should have parents. Everybody should have a family. Every kid has the right to have a family. And to me, that was just you saying to me, like money is more important, you know? And if they had chosen that, that would be okay. But I thought that's not for other people to decide. So I am just so honored to be their mom in every way now. Your book arrives at a time in which it's hard to grapple with and fathom the amount of trauma, anxiety, and despair there is in our country. Um, 
And the two data points where we see it are, well, three, suicides, homicides, and uh, overdoses specifically of fentanyl, um, which has been coming from the recovery community and addiction and recovery has been just a game changer mm -hmm. um, because those who die of accidental overdoses and intentional overdoses are globbed together, but they all add up to just a nation grieving in trauma and in despair. So you didn't just look for the good, you found it. And you, my friend, said looking for goodness like it was medicine. Well, I'm here to tell you it is, and it's mm -hmm. more important than medicine. Mm -hmm. It's more important than all the medicine that all the pharmaceutical companies can manufacture. Mm -hmm. Looking for goodness is more important than medicine right now. So there must have been times and there must have been people who were overwhelmed with despair, and I do not blame them. Mm -mm. But how does your book speak into this void? How are you able to... Well, tell me about the title, Write Their Names in Color. How, are, how were you able to find goodness in this? Mm. Yeah. Well, um, we titled it, we wrote your name in color because of one story and it actually kind of circles back to your original question of why I wrote the book. Um, COVID was a like COVID, not COVID itself, but shut in was some respite for me, surprisingly. Um, I, I needed that. And kind of after I had done all the projects I could around the house and spackled and painted everything, there was a quiet that I hadn't had in years. And um, I kept thinking about this one story that no one but me knew. And I wanted my kids to know it. So I thought if I, if I die, I want them to know this, you know, and I thought I better write it down. So I took my computer out and I wrote the story of Graffiti Bridge. And that story really was that after Danny and Rena died, um, you see, we have this bridge where like trains migrate across and it has cement walls and two cars can barely fit under it, but it's on a frontage road kind of in Mount Shasta. And so over the years, people put like, you know, go Carol with when she has breast cancer or like, you know, we hate Trump, you know, there's all kinds of it becomes a social media platform for the town. And so a couple days after Danny and Rena died, the youth group in love just said, let's go paint it. Let's go paint it with Danny and Rena's name. Let's put, and they invited um, all my kids and they went. Um, and so Kieran and KK and Aiden, they were all there and um, they painted it with just so much love and so much color. But the community was hurting and they wanted justice. They didn't want what happened to Rena to happen again. And so in many people in doing, in trying to wrestle with that, they thought, well, we, we won't condone Danny at all. We won't celebrate his life. We won't, you know, and so someone in the middle of the night would take black spray paint and cross his name out every night. But because I had morning sickness, I needed some protein in the morning. I would go into the main house and I would early in the morning and I would catch my mother-in-law, Pam, putting on her shoes and grabbing a can of paint and whatever she had in the garage, whatever colors, she would go and write his name back before anyone woke up so that then the kids went under that bridge, they would see their dad's name when the community. And I thought he killed her daughter yet. Her love was greater. And it was like literally adding back, you know, like what had been stolen. She added back to know that he had legacy to know that we are not our worst decision. Thankfully, aren't you glad Stuart? You're not, 
your worst decision. Like that is not the one thing. And, and with suicide or even overdose, many times we become, that is our legacy, but really he had so much legacy and she had so much legacy. And so I watched every day and I wondered if anybody else was curious why his name changed color every day. That really became like the metaphor of the entire book. And so I wrote it, I wrote it in um, chronological order and it ended up somewhere in the middle of the book. And then I kind of tore it apart and I was putting flashbacks in, I made it richer. And um, one of my writing coaches said, I found your prologue. And I'm like, what do you, why, what do you think's my prologue? She's like graffiti bridge. And I thought that was the first story I wrote and it opens up the book and it really is the story of how we can write people's name and color and how love and forgiveness can redeem anything. And I think also um, throughout the book, metaphorically, you know, I am writing his name and color um, by my own story, by speaking his legacy, by making sure his kids know that that was a choice, but we are not our worst choice. That's beautiful. I, I think it's just such a powerful message and it's just needed so desperately now because there is this despair. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm very moved. You know, my biological father drank himself to death mm -hmm. and I was, even though I never knew the man, I was angry at him for a lot of years. And even though I inherited his disease or disorder of alcohol use disorder, which killed him directly. Um, mm. Were you tempted to be angry at Danny? Surprisingly, no. Um, I've really analyzed that a lot. I don't know. I mean, when he died, when the moment I heard he died, I kind of fell to the ground and I, I said, damn it, Danny, you know, um, but I think it was not as much anger as like wishing he hadn't left, um, and given up. And I wish he had, had, you know, been able to tell us more. Um, but I asked that question to my husband because it was his sister and there were so many people who were angry around us and on social media and obviously with the bridge. And I, in the stillness of one night, I asked him that I said, you know, are you angry at Danny? And he just really, because we both um, just, we really believe a lot of what is, uh, is preached at our church and what is in the Bible. And he just said, you know, I think if I'm angry, I'm the same as Danny, you know, like, I think there's kind of this point where like, we all make bad decisions and we're all one day away from our, you know, from something like that happening. Like we all really are like, there's just so many days where I'm sure people have thought it would be easier. And he just had so much empathy that he said, no, I'm not angry because I'm like him. You know, I'm like it. We're all, we all, we don't, we like to pretend that we're so far away from that, but I'm like, we don't to feel so desperate. I'm like, we're all just one day away from it. And he really saw that. And then I remember looking at him just with such admiration, you know, but I think, you know, when I became the hub, I was between putting the kids to bed, family meetings, going to court, the community, um, we had a lot of people even help us. And so I would go to those meetings, you know, if they um, like funds were set up or something. And so I really was just like this in between. And I, I just got to see how everybody saw it. And yeah, I think, I think watching Pam, my mother-in-law and watching my husband just really like kept me anchored in love. Were they mad at you for not being mad at him? Hmm. I wouldn't know the answer to that all the way. Some people get I, angry at you and you're mm -hmm. like, Hey, I, I lost a lot too. I think I know there have been people angry at me, but mostly I think that was because I stood in a gap to protect 
the kids. I said, no, when they wanted a yes, I think that's been probably when I have directly seen anger. I think a lot of people were shocked that we did a memorial for Danny and Rena together. Um, but I, I love Danny so much and I love Rena so much. And it is true that like, if you love someone that much, it's like, it really does win. <laughs> you said it would had a lot to do with what your church preached. I have no idea what your church preaches. So what, what message are you talking about that led you to this notion that you could not, you could not be angry at Danny? Hmm. Well, I feel that you could be angry. I feel that I don't feel that even that's necessarily wrong, but I wasn't angry. I think what I was referring to is specifically, there's a place in, um, in the Bible that talks about like how hating someone is the same as murder, which is pretty outrageous if you think about it. Um, and it was kind of like, if I'm going to believe these words, I got to believe all of them. I mean, like, you know, you're just not going to pick and choose. And I think that was what my husband was pulling on that day when he answered me was just like, sometimes we just feel so in order to protect ourselves, we put on a lot of judgment. Um, but I do feel like you can have healthy anger and know there's wrong because I do, I want, I think that was wrong. And I think we have to be really careful not to swing to the other side and say that everything's fine. And he didn't mean, I mean, like that was a horrific wrong. And I, but I'm not the whole, I believe God's going to take care of that, you know, um, and however he wants to, that's not my job. And they were gone. And my job was to take care of the people in front of me. And so I think, I think that's what I mean. It's just like all of those things were encouraged by the people who were living this ahead of me. If we got hit by lightning today and the only thing that survived was this little bit of audio, what is your legacy? Mm. My, um, my family, we kind of, when we went, when, when we did it, went to the courthouse for adoption, we had t-shirts made for our tribe. Uh, it said um, a mixture of our names because my um, adoptive kids kept their last name Mall, And then um, we have Wilden. So we call ourselves Malden or Blend. And so it said Malden on the back, like a team Jersey, but on the front was an insignia that said strong backbones, soft hearts. And I would like to be known for having a strong backbone and a soft heart. I think there's so many pieces to that, but I want to love like I'm not scared. Um, and I really, really want to have a heart that breaks for what I believe breaks God's heart. Um, and I, but I also want to have a background backbone to protect and to stand up for what's right. And so I think that's it. I think soft heart, strong backbone. And then to be a consistent person, to be the same person, no matter who I'm with. Um, our buddy, our mutual friend, Hope Aldrich, put us together. Mm -hmm. While we were speaking, she said, let me know how it goes. She, <laughs> she's amazing. She's amazing, as are you. And I, I really don't hold a candle to what you've been through. And um, I so honor and salute the book. I pre-ordered, Jesse. I pre-ordered yesterday. Thank you. Thank you so much. That <laughs> so, means the world to me. So it, it costs me real dollars. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I texted Hope. Let me find this text. I said, um, in touch with Jesse. This was Saturday. I was still... I was just coming out of COVID in touch with Jesse pre-ordered her book because I do what you tell me to do hope. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, God bless you, Jesse. Thank you for making time all the way from Mount Shasta, California. I, I wow. so feel privileged to just, to just know a little bit of your story. Oh, I am honored. I am honored and, and thank you for listening and for 
for giving me this time. I know it's really precious, so thank you. There's one thing Jesse Wilden said after I stopped recording, and it was, and it's in the book, and that is, she felt empathy, and empathy was the way she did not feel rage at her or anger at her brother-in-law for what he did because she had had suicidal thoughts and actions herself. This is Suicide Prevention Month. There is help available. Your life is important. Please, please reach out for help. In the meantime, Jesse's story of hope and strength and resilience is We Wrote Your Name in Color, and it's available for pre-order. It comes out on the fifth anniversary of her brother and sister-in-law's death. We wrote your name in color. Jesse. thank you. In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Katherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening. One word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. At this pivotal time for Voice Locket, I want to thank, thank, thank everyone who's been with us from the beginning on Man Listening, manlistening.com, and the In Her Words podcast. We will continue 140 weeks, 140 new episodes. We're not stopping now. Thank you. Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much.